I'd like for you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 27. I kept thinking that this was going to be a a very quick Bible study tonight. I don't want to give you any false impressions though. Certainly I, I don't want to be a false prophet. Some false prophets going into some problems here in Jeremiah chapters 26 and 27, so don't want to be that. Jeremiah 27, let me read the first seven verses, and then let's pray. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, now some of your Bible translations may say Zedekiah. I'll explain that in just a moment. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes, put them on your neck, and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. And command them to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm, and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. And now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And the beasts of the field I have also given him to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's son until the time of his land comes. And then many nations and great kings shall make him serve them. Let's pray. Our Father, this evening we want to take the time uh, to lift up the Garcia family and pray that you would give them comfort and blessing in these days that, uh, that they have to deal with uh, the loss of their little daughter, Emmy. At the same time, I would pray, Lord, and I believe strongly that uh, through a ministry given to them, through uh, Pastor James and Betty and, and others, of their encouragement to know where she is today. But that doesn't take away, Lord, the pain. And we ask for the blessing of your Holy Spirit to be upon them, to strengthen them, Lord, in these times. To grant them, O God, your peace and your comfort, your consolation. And through it all, Lord God, that they would continue to look to you, to know that your joy is their strength. Your presence is their strength. And your power is their sustenance. And so, Father, we do ask these things in your precious name and in the name of Jesus Christ. And we ask, Father, for the anointing of your Holy Spirit to be be upon all those who are here tonight as we seek to understand your word. How not only it would apply to Judah then, to Israel in the future, but how it stirs our heart and applies to us tonight. May we find, Lord God, that truth, which is your truth, from your work. And may we worship you tonight, continually, in spirit and in truth. And this we do ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. When Babylon defeated the Egyptian and Assyrian armies 
at the battle of Karshemish in 605 BC terror and panic got hold of the nations that were anywhere near the Babylonian Empire Egypt was now the target of conquest by Nebuchadnezzar but to subdue it he had to conquer and control these smaller territories and nations on the other hand Egypt wanted the smaller nations as allies to act as buffer zones against the Babylonians but more than likely it was Egypt that, uh, that took an initiative to form an alliance against Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon and called upon the representatives of these countries to meet in Jerusalem placing the occurrence of this event in the early years of Zedekiah's reign. Now this is just the historical background to, to chapter 27 which which helps to pose the question, where was Judah in all of this? Well, we know from our studies of chapter 21 and, and some other previous chapters that they were very much involved in being a part of this particular alliance. But as Hezekiah had been urged, <coughs> urged by the prophet Isaiah many, many years previous to this, uh, over a hundred years before as a matter of fact, that he make no alliance with, with either Syria, Israel, or Assyria, because those were the nations that were <coughs> against Judah at the time, receiving, in fact, the advice, trust the Lord and stay neutral. Trust the Lord and, 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 and don't go off and make these alliances. Then we can consider Jeremiah's prophecy to Zedekiah in chapter 27. So as we look at the first three verses again, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes. In other words, make for yourself those uh, implements of yokes, which was a, a wooden piece of... Uh, uh, well, it, it was a large piece of, of wooden thing that was put around the necks of the of the oxen, and the uh, bonds would be, of course, the leather straps that held the uh, the oxen together. It says, "Make for yourself bonds and yokes, and put them on your neck." So here again, we see Jeremiah doing an object lesson that could be seen before his audience. He's had to do this before. Other prophets did it. And while people probably thought it looked kind of dumb, you do what God tells you. So he put on this yoke. And, it's, and the word yoke here in the Hebrew is plural, so it was actually more than one yoke, which really was one uh, yoke that was used for two people. So it was two pieces of wood and then strapped over his own neck. So the Lord said to Jeremiah, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes and put them on your neck and send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem to Zedekiah, king of Judah. In other words, send them the message. Whether he sent them the yokes or not, it's very possible he may have made five yokes and gave each one to a representative of the king who were all, by the way, in Jerusalem at that time, and I'll explain that in a moment, or it was just, take this message to those kings. But let's deal with some of the problems that we might see here in verse 1, because it says in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, I said earlier that you might have read the word Zedekiah, or the name Zedekiah, in the place of Jehoiakim, if you have one of the newer translations. Well, in most of those newer translations of the Scriptures, that name of Zedekiah is given in verse 1 in place of Jehoiakim's, the translators believing that a copy error occurred. It's, it's incredible how many people believe that a, a copyist made an error, that we have an error sitting before us in God's Word. 
as they say, the copier made this error, supposing that the, that the copyist inadvertently copied the heading of chapter 26. If you look at chapter 26 for just a moment, and you see there verse 1, it says, In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim. Now what's different about this and the other verse, in verse 1 of chapter 27? Well, the difference is that um, last phrase uh, of verse 1 and verse 27, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, which is a lot different than in the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying. So if there was a copyist error, he would have actually made a, 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 an error on all the verse. And usually in the days of copyists, there were at times those who would double check what people were doing. But you would think that if a copyist made a, a mistake, <laughs> that he would make the whole mistake in the whole verse. So I'm not one who believes that there's a copyist mistake here, but you'll see why I don't believe that here in just a moment. The focus is Zedekiah in verses 3 and verse 12. So this particular message in chapter 27 is for Zedekiah. And while this could have been the case, maybe there was just an inadvertent usage of the word Jehoiakim or the name Jehoiakim, it may be better to look at this introduction to chapter 27 as accurate in that the events of the prophecy could have been given to Jeremiah at the time that he received the prophecy during Jehoiakim's reign. There's nothing that says that he couldn't have received both of the messages in chapter 26 and 27 at the same time, but had to reserve the message for Zedekiah when the right time would come. So, that could have possibly been what has taken place here, so that there's no confusion as to whether there are mistakes in the Scriptures or not. So there is an explanation that these events of the prophecy was given to Jeremiah at the time that he received the prophecy during Jehoiakim's reign, which was about 15 years, give or take a couple of years. About 15 years before the message has to reach Zedekiah. But it was not given until Zedekiah's reign, since it concerned that particular time in his fulfillment. With all that being said, we see that Jeremiah is commanded to give another action sermon, as I said, an object lesson or an action sermon, to stir the attention of the people. And the prophecy came at a time when Zedekiah had to be conferring then with representatives from neighboring nations, as our text implies. So Zedekiah then was, of course, the last king to reign in the southern kingdom. We've gone over that in our study of previous chapters. Uh, Zedekiah was the last king to reign in the southern kingdom of Judah before the Babylonians made their third and their final assault upon the nation, specifically Jerusalem, and destroyed the city, taking the remaining people back to Babylon with them. Now, as previously mentioned, so we can kind of get caught up in the dates and times here. As previously mentioned, the first invasion came in 605 B.C. This was a couple of weeks ago. When the Babylonians took the best of the best back to Babylon with them, incorporating them into their culture. So they got all the wisest people, all the, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the best of, of all of the, uh, of the young people in Judah to get them to assimilate into the Babylonian culture. The second invasion came in 597 B.C. And at that time, Zedekiah was placed as a vassal king in Judah until he revolted against Babylon, causing this third and final invasion in 586 B.C. That may already give you a little bit of an indication of what uh, Zedekiah will end up doing rather than listening to what God is saying. But the Lord commands Jeremiah then, as we said earlier, to make this ox yoke and wear it around his neck. The yoke itself, the yoke itself was a symbol of subjection. And you need to understand this whole picture here. The yoke itself was a picture of subjection and a symbol of subjection, surrender, servitude, submission, and bondage in captivity. And that was certainly the message that Jeremiah was to get across. This yoke is what you're going to have put on you 
in captivity where you will now surrender to the Babylonian king. Completely and totally. You'll be a slave. You'll be submissive only to him and in constant bondage. The message was to be given to three groups of people in this chapter. First of all, it's given to the five nations that are mentioned here. Secondly, it's given to Zedekiah and his officials. And thirdly, it's given to the priests and the people of Judah. So Jeremiah is presenting this message to Gentile nations, presenting it to the king of Judah, who was an evil king at the time anyway, with no room to become a good king, and then to the priests and the people who were as much a part of the problem because they had followed into idolatry because of the previous kings, Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin and, and Zedekiah. And Jeremiah the prophet then was to send these yokes, whether literally or physically, as I explained earlier, or otherwise, to the kings of Edom, Moab, Ammon, Tyre, and Sidon by their representatives with this message. Again, the message is submit to Nebuchadnezzar or be destroyed. Submit to Nebuchadnezzar or be destroyed. So we look then at verse 4, the next verse of our text, it says, And command them, command them to say to their masters, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. I might have made the comment on that phrase, the God of Israel, last time, because we know that we're dealing with the, the divided nation uh, of Judah, separated from the nation of Israel, because the nation had become divided after Solomon and uh, during his sons, after his son's reign. But uh, nonetheless, he is still the God of Israel, the whole of Israel. I think that there is a sense of uh, showing how God still has a desire and not only a desire, but certainly a plan to restore the whole nation of Israel. So see that then that little phrase as being important, not just something to call God. If he is the God of Israel and Israel is in captivity <clears throat> and has been in captivity because of the Assyrians. And now Judah goes into captivity because of their rebellion. Yet when God addresses everyone, he says, I'm the God of Israel. And he's saying, I'm still the God of all the peoples my one nation. So that, that is a very hopeful statement. So thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, thus you shall say to your masters, I have made the earth, the man and the beast that are on the ground, by my great power and by my outstretched arm. You know, this is a, a very uh, uh, important phrase that we see God use and, and almost exclusively in the book of Jeremiah. By my power and by my outstretched arm. We see that a few times in this chapter. It's a beautiful phrase. But here he says, all these things, man, you know, I made the earth, the man, the beast, everything by my power. Nobody else can take, uh, you know, they, they, they can't take uh, uh, the, uh, the credit for it. I've done it. God is saying this. By my arm. These things have come to pass and have given it to whom it seemed proper to me. So God is in control of all things. This is God's sovereign power. This is God's sovereign plan. This is God's sovereign will that these things happen with Nebuchadnezzar being his servant, as we shall read in just a moment. He says, and now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Now, a few weeks ago, again, I, 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 we dealt with this particular type of phrase, but uh, just for your reminder, just, you know, it, it's, it's as if the Lord is saying, the devil, my servant. But how often has God had to allow the devil to do certain things? But he uses that for his glory, for his honor, God's glory, God's honor. You see, there are often times that the Lord allows things where the enemy does, does some things toward us or against us to draw us near to God. In a way, that's God using the enemy. 
Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't want him to use it all the time. It's, you know, hey, if we don't get the, if we if we don't get the, uh, you know, the message right away, boy, we're cabezones, you know. We got to get the message. You know, God's trying to say, listen, I don't want to have to deal with you this way. But here's a whole nation that has rebelled against him for how many years? 490 years. And, and, and so he's got to get the message across. He says, Nebuchadnezzar is the king of Babylon, but he's my servant. I'm using him. And the beasts of the field I've also given to serve him. So all nations shall serve him and his son and his son's sons until the time of his land comes. So it's not just Nebuchadnezzar that they're going to serve under. And I'll mention a couple of names here in just a moment. But obviously these kings, along with Zedekiah and Egypt, were planning to work together to fight against Babylon, knowing that they couldn't defeat Babylon alone. And it is believed that this attempt to gather in alliance together was at a time that Nebuchadnezzar and his government was having internal problems, and they saw this as an opportunity to defeat Babylon. Just take for a moment, just take for instance... The fact that, uh, you know, some people believe today that we in the United States of America are weaker now than we've ever been as a nation to the other nations. Are we letting our defenses down? Are we trying to be nice guys to the whole world? Are we trying to show some other kind of face to everybody to say, oh, listen, we're everybody's buddy? It's a weakness that nations, and not to mention evil dictators and whatnot, would try to take advantage of. Babylon went through that, and they thought that at that particular time, there was a coup actually against Nebuchadnezzar. This is historical if you go back reading the uh, the Babylonian chronicles, there, there are certain chronicles that have been found that deal with uh, the history of Babylon of that time, there was a coup against Nebuchadnezzar. So they thought, so Egypt and uh, Judah and all their alliances here thought, well, this is the time to go get them. <laughs> but it wasn't. <laughs> because, you see, they didn't know that uh, the revolt in Babylon was put down rather quickly. And the nation was no less powerful. But what's really most powerful here is that the Lord announced that He was the Creator of all things. This is the most powerful part of this whole passage. Is that God, the Creator of all things, makes it very clear that He is. And He would give His creation to whomever He pleased. In this case, to Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And that would be good for a long while. uh, Through Nebuchadnezzar's reign and then... Uh, his reign actually only lasted until about uh, uh, 562 B.C. But then there was his son. And this is a, a, really an interesting name for his son. His son's name was Evil Merodach. Evil Merodach. I mean, that was just his name, you know, like Evil Knievel, I suppose. You know, no, most people don't think of him as being kind of evil, but that's exactly what his name was. Evil Merodach. And and his brother-in-law, uh, Nergal uh, Sherezer, not Chorizo, but uh, Sherezer. <laughs> These are hard names, man, but I'm, I'm, t- I'm just trying to give them to you as best as I can. I, th- I think the proper pronounce- pronunciation is Sharetzer, but uh, Nergal Sharetzer's reign. Uh, and so you'll know that I'm not making these things up. Uh, turn to Second Kings 25. Turn to Second Kings 25 and verse 27. This is just a little history lesson. We're getting a little bit of history as we go along here. Now it came to pass in the 37th year of the captivity of, notice, Jehoiakim. This would be Kaniah or uh, uh, Jeconiah, uh, king of Judah, in the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, that evil Merodach. You see, I wasn't kidding you. There's his name. Evil Merodach, king of Babylon. In the year that he began to reign, released Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from prison. So that's the son of of, uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then, years later, it wouldn't actually be his grandson yet to take the throne, but there would be another. It would be, uh, I believe, if I'm mistaken, his 
his brother-in-law in Nergal Sharetzer. Uh, but Jeremiah 39 verse 3 has his name mentioned. And the, men- the mention of his name here is to remind us that uh, he's in a position as a prince of the king to become king when necessary. So uh, I just bring this verse up for that reason. Then all the princes of the king of Babylon came in and sat in the middle gate. Near Gal Sharetzer, there's his name. Samgar Nebo. I, you know, I'll, I'll read them to you. They're pretty cool names. If you're looking for a name for your your kid, for you know, when, when Samgar Nebo, uh, Sarsechim, Rabseras, Nergal, Zaretzer, must must have been a relative. Rab Mag, here's a good one. Rab Mag, with the rest of the princes of the king of Babylon. Okay, enough of the funny names. By the way, those are all Babylonian names, Chaldean names. And just as Judah had its false prophets. The Gentile nations had their diviners, their dreamers, their enchanters, their sorcerers. And the Lord had a word for these representatives concerning this as well. So God is not only telling His people about their diviners and their sorcerers and all. He's telling the Gentiles to be careful of of them. Notice if you will in verse 8, it says, And it shall be... That the nation and kingdom which will not serve Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and which will not put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, that nation I will punish, says the Lord, with the sword, the famine, the pestilence, until I have consumed them by his hand. Therefore do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your soothsayers, or your sorcerers who speak to you saying, you shall not serve the king of Babylon. For they prophesy a lie to you to remove you far from your land. And I will drive you out and you will perish. But the nations that bring their necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will let them remain in their own land, says the Lord, and they shall till it. And dwell in it. Listen, the, the, the warning was clear. Don't rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. Don't form any alliances against Nebuchadnezzar. It's not going to work. Don't listen to the false prophets and the sorcerers who are telling you to go up against him. Don't listen to them. They're speaking lies to you. And if God is saying this to the, to, to the kings of, of these Gentile nations, it brings up a question to us. It brings up the question, why was Zedekiah of Judah, a Jew, a Jewish king, Why was Zedekiah messing around with this kind of political council that was coming from such a wicked, occult-based source? Well, the obvious answer, of course, is that Zedekiah was already an evil king. Zedekiah was probably an idol worshiper. Zedekiah was was one who was allowing idol worship to take place in, in Judah. But dig deeper. Dig deeper. The Word of God calls calls us to dig deeper when it comes to these particular issues. Someone who should know the Word of God. Someone who should know better. Someone who should know that you don't mess around, first of all, with God's laws. You don't mess around with God Himself. And then you don't uh, reject Him completely and go off and, and, and make not only a political alliance with people, but a religious alliance with people. Because as soon as you start believing what their sorcerers and their diviners and their prophets believe, then you have just become one with them. What is Zedekiah doing? It's enough that we could, you know, go back and uh, to Exodus chapter 20, read the Ten Commandments. You can go to what God says about not, not worshiping other gods than, than, than the God of Israel. 
We're not making any graven images, not doing all of these things, you know. We know all of that. We see what happened to, to, to uh, the northern kingdom of Israel when they fell because of, because of their idolatry and their rebellion toward God, their disobedience to the law of God. But think that this particular issue is a spiritual transfer throughout all of time and even affects us as believers in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Because the Apostle Paul, in looking at things from that Old Testament perspective, in 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18, says this. He says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now understand, first of all, that Paul is not, when you read this whole issue, read this whole passage, you, you realize that Paul is not saying, don't, don't have any, 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 anything to do with unbelievers. Why? Because we have to tell them about Jesus Christ. We need the opportunities and, and the wherewithal to tell them about Jesus. So this is dealing with what they believe. This is dealing with what unbelievers hold to, what their, some of their tenets are. We don't want to, you know, be yoked with them in those things. So he says, do not be unequally yoked together. And by the way, did you notice the word yoked there? The same concept of the yoke that Jeremiah had to wear to show them that they would be in bondage. And when we bind ourselves to people who do not believe in Jesus Christ in these particular areas, biblical and spiritual areas, or unbiblical and unspiritual areas, as the case may be, we are putting ourselves in bondage. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship? And notice these five rhetorical questions that Paul asks. For what fellowship fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? What's the answer? None! Right? Amen? What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? None. Can you all say none? None. Very good. None. What accord, or I should say, what communion has light with darkness? What communion has light with darkness? None. Wow, the same answer. Go into a dark room, turn on your light, darkness is out. No communion, light with darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial? None. This, This is, by the way, an Old Testament word that has to do with worthless people or the best word would be, certainly would be the considered uh, sinful, evil, wicked type. But when you think about it, sinful, wickedness, evil is worthless to the believer. So what accord has Christ with evil? None. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? None. In these particular issues, nothing. None. And then look at the last question. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? None. As God has said. Well, by the way, he says, for you are the temple of the living God. There's a, there's a, there's a billboard out, you know. I think it's from the YWCA, I think. And I don't know why they went to this particular thinking, but, you know, it says uh, something about, uh, you know, your body being worthy of worship, something to that effect. If you're, you know, if, if your body is a temple, uh, then uh, is it worthy of worship? And the first thought that came to mind when I saw that is, wait a minute, you don't worship the temple. You worship God. So, they need to not only change their billboard, they need to change their hearts. You are the temple of the living God. You are the temple. 
As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you. And you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Paul's idea was was clear. Uh, And and the idea to make clear was that there, there was and is a wide gulf between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. There is a wide chasm between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of Satan. There's no, there's no door you can go back and forth in, you know. Either in Christ or you're not. That's the idea here. You shall touch no unclean thing. The principle of that, of course, was in the law that was given to Israel. Even to this day, many Jews try to live by that law. Live by the, the, the kosher laws and live, you know, try to, you know, not eat this, don't eat that, you know, and... And some of them are as devout as they can be. But the idea is there's a gap, there's this, there's this gulf between the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of, of Satan. As a matter of fact, in Colossians 1 verse 13, Paul says he has delivered us. He has delivered us. He has transferred us is another word that is used there. Or conveyed us. You know, got us out of one and put us into another. In other words, He has delivered us from the power of darkness where there was no light, where there was no love of Christ, where there was nothing of any good value or Christian value or eternal value. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us, you see. He has conveyed us or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. So in that particular transfer it is you you are out of the darkness now you're in light now stay in the light and by God's grace and by the power of the Holy Spirit you live in the light of God you live in the grace of God because darkness death despair is where we were light life Love is where we are. What a difference. I don't want to be like the world. And I don't think anybody should want to be like the world. And I don't believe that the Apostle Paul taught us that we can take a little bit of the world to try to bring the world into the church. That's the problem with the church today in many cases is that we brought so much of the world into the church people can't recognize it as the church which is supposed to be separate from the world so here's Zedekiah a king of Judah a son of Josiah a godly man a godly king who I'm sure knew he can't he cannot go before God and say I didn't know I didn't know about your law I didn't know about the word I didn't know about this I didn't know about the commandments yes he did yes he did what he did was I know about these things but I'm not going to do them it's not about God anymore it's about me my reign, my kingdom, my government, my nation. Well, we know what's going to happen. Getting back to Jeremiah's message, in their present situation, the false prophets and the occult leaders were strongly encouraging the nations to break the yoke of Babylon. By the way, let let me go back for just a moment. When we were talking about these diviners and these sorcerers and and, and enchanters and and soothsayers and all. When you go back to that list that was given to us over there in in, in verse 9, the diviners, by the way, uh, another word is prognosticators. You know what that word comes from? It comes from a word that means to guess. 
guessers. They were guessers by signs. They would guess by looking at a sign. I guess that's what this means. Well, you know, that doesn't, you know, you could guess maybe a good percentage of the time right, but you also guess a lot of things wrong. There aren't very many good guessers, you know. And then there's the dreamers. It mentions dreamers here. Interesting word, because the word dreamers there, literally, it comes from a word that literally means uh, to break in pieces. Now think about your dreams. Does anybody ever dream uh, in all the time that you sleep, which I don't know how long that is. I hope it's not now. But in all the time that you do sleep, uh, you know, we, we oftentimes just kind of dream in fragments. We may, be, we may have a dream that's kind of vivid and, and lasts for a little bit, you know, a little bit longer than most dreams. But usually it still kind of was a fragment. It came, just came from nowhere. And this is what I remember. And I remember this much. But then it ends. It's all fragments. And so the word dreamers here is, 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 is taking fragments. In other words, as, as the dreamers were, they would be the ones who would try to, you know, hear people's dreams. And they would take fragments and use, use those to patch up a, a meaning. You might think of those who uh, Nebuchadnezzar wanted to interpret his dreams in Daniel, in the early parts of Daniel, and they had to bring Daniel in, you know, to interpret it. But you know, Daniel had the God, had the Lord with him. And then there's the soothsayers. The soothsayer, the word there for soothsayer, comes from a word that means cloud mongers. It comes from the word cloud. The basic word is cloud. But what they would do is the soothsayer would look up at the clouds and they would look by the color and the density and the rarity and the shape of the clouds and they would come up with some... Where did they get these nut jobs? But that's what they did. And then there were the uh, sorcerers. Now, these were the discoverers. They were the, the ones who would discover the hidden meaning of things. The hidden things by spells. They might discover it by drugs or incantations. So, so you get an idea then of what we're dealing with, what, what we were dealing with in, the, in that time. So we've got to get back to, to Jeremiah's message here. Because in his present situation, those false prophets and occult leaders were strongly encouraging these nations to, to go against Babylon, break that yoke of Babylon. But Jeremiah pronounced the unmistakable warning of God. The nations must not listen to these deceivers. The nations had to realize that the message of the false prophets was a lie. Rebellion would lead to their utter defeat and the exile of the survivors. But there was hope for the nations that listened to the Lord. There was hope for the nations that listened to God. If any nation accepted Babylon's rule, its people would be allowed to live in peace in their own land. And this would actually happen to those who actually would say, okay, we surrender. All right, you can stay here. They did that with some people. But not all. The ones who resisted them faced the strongest of their, of their power, of their arm. So the next to receive the message was Zedekiah. So now the message of the yoke comes to Zedekiah in verse 12. I also spoke to Zedekiah, king of Judah, according to all these words, saying, Bring your necks under the yoke of the king of Babylon, and serve him and his people, and live. Why will you die, you and your people, by the sword, by famine, by the pestilence, as the Lord has spoken against the nation that will not serve the king of Babylon? Therefore, do not listen to the words of the prophets who speak to you, saying, You shall not serve the king of Babylon. These are the false prophets in Judah, by the way. You shall not serve the king of Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. For I have not sent them, says the Lord. Yet they prophesy a lie in my name. They're using my name, but they're telling you lies. That I may drive you out, and that, uh, that you may perish, you and the prophets who prophesy to you. So Jeremiah delivered the same message to his own king. And the message was in two parts as well. Bow down, or bow your neck, I should say, under Babylon's yoke and serve them. And do not trust or listen to the false prophets. Those were the two messages. But there is an interesting gist to this message to Zedekiah. And that is in what God tells him when he says, Why will you die and take your people down with you? Why will you die and take your people down with you? Why is it that some people just have to take others with them in their sins? And to, and to the furthest extent of the judgment of their sins. 
I, I have not been able to understand this. I'm sure there's probably some psychological, psychiatric type of an explanation when it comes to people who will go and kill their families and then kill themselves. But they got to tell it. You know, if they just wanted to die, then they should have died. Why do they kill their families? You know, you, you know what I'm saying? What I'm talking about here? You know, those situations? We wonder, why is it that people want to take people with their sin, in their sins? Why will you die and take your people down with you? Isn't it amazing how people take down others with them over their own sins? And yet Jesus dealt with this matter while being near a child, by the way. We're told in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 9, he says, At that time, Matthew says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them. And he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this in my name receives me. But notice verse 6. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea. Those of you who have been to Capernaum with us in, in, on our trips to Israel, you've seen those big millstones. Huge, big stones like the big ones, you know, about this, this thick, you know, and, uh, you know, this diameter or so. And they're pretty heavy. You know, one person really couldn't pick it up themselves. Is it better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were drowned in the depth of the sea? Verse 7. Woe to the world because of the offenses, because of offenses. For offenses must come, but woe to that man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or your foot cause you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. You notice, you deal with it yourself. It is better for you to enter into life lame or maimed rather than have two hands and two feet to be cast into the everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hellfire. So Jesus is dealing with this idea. Why will you die and take people down with you? Causing people to sin. So getting back to Zedekiah, Jeremiah has been down this road with him before. Because if you go back a couple of chapters to Jeremiah 21, verses 3 through 7, remember, here it says, And Jeremiah said to them, Thus you shall say to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Behold, I will turn back the weapons of war that are in your hands, with which you fight against the king of Babylon and the Chaldeans who besiege you outside the walls, and I will assemble them in the midst of this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and with a strong arm, even in anger and fury and great wrath. I will strike the inhabitants of this city, both men and beasts, for they, uh, they shall die of a great pestilence. And afterwards, says, says the Lord, I will deliver Zedekiah, king of Judah, his servants and the people, and such as are left in this city from the pestilence and the sword and the famine into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, into the hand of, the, of their enemies and into the hand of those who seek their life, and he shall strike them with the edge of the sword. He shall not spare them or have pity or mercy. And isn't it interesting? Again, here we see how God is speaking to, uh, to Zedekiah through Jeremiah. And as we go to chapter 27, as we are in today, once again, Zedekiah given the opportunity to repent of his sins. But it doesn't happen. The third group to whom Jeremiah now gives his message is to the priest and to the people. Let's go on because of time. Let's look at verses 16 to 22. Also I spoke to the priests and to all this people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Do not listen to the words of your prophets who prophesy to you, saying, Behold, the vessel of the Lord's house will now surely be brought back from Babylon, for they prophesy a lie to you. Everything's going to be okay. Now see, they've been going around saying there's going to be peace, everything's going to be cool, everything's going to be fine. And even the things that had been taken earlier on, when, when, uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came back in 605, whenever, you know, and, and took all these things to Babylon, all those things will be brought back here. And Jeremiah is saying, they're lying to you. They prophesy a lie to you. Verse 17, do not listen to them, serve the king of Babylon and live. 
Why should this city be laid waste? But if they are prophets, and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts, that the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah, and at Jerusalem, do not go to Babylon. May I tell you this, that this, this is kind of a mockery to the prophets. Verse 18 is, is really just a mockery to them. Why don't you guys pray? Why don't you intercede? I'll explain it in a moment. Verse 19, For thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the pillars, concerning the sea, concerning the carts, and concerning the remainder of the vessels. By the way, these are all things that were left behind in the temple. Uh, the pillars, of course, everything that, that had gold in, inlaid into it. The sea is not so much uh, like, a, uh, like an ocean. It's, it's pretty much probably the, uh, the, the whole vessel that uh, was made for, for the sacrifices in the water. Concerning the carts, the carts that were made in gold and, and bronze and all that. Concerning the remainder of the vessels that remained in the city, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, did not take when he carried away captive Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, from Jerusalem to Babylon, and all the nobles of Judah and Jerusalem. Then verse 21, Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon. Notice, this is the truth. <laughs> Not what the prophets say. This is going to happen. They shall be carried to Babylon, and there they shall be until the day that I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. So the false prophets then were claiming that the costly vessels of gold and bronze that the Babylonians had taken from the temple during their first invasion in 605 were soon to be returned to Jerusalem. But Jeremiah knew that this was a lie. In fact, these treasures weren't brought back until the Lord did visit His people and the remnant returned to Judah and Jerusalem after the decree of Cyrus. Now you'd have to believe that the most important thing wasn't the rescue or, or wasn't to rescue the furnishings of the temple. That was not the most important thing. You have to believe that the most important thing wasn't to rescue the furnishings of the temple, but to save the people from death and the city from destruction. So he's saying, listen, just let Babylon conquer. But if you don't, you're going to die. And the city will be destroyed. They were more concerned about furnishings than we were about the people. And the only way this could be done, the scenario of, of rescuing the people, was by submitting to Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. It's also interesting how Jeremiah taunts the false prophets by encouraging them to pray about the situation. That's, that's verse 18. He says, but if they are prophets and if the word of the Lord is with them, let them now make intercession to the Lord of hosts. Hey, if they're really prophets, let them pray. Let the vessels which are left in the house of the Lord, in the house of the king of Judah and in Jerusalem, do not go to Babylon. Pray for that. Pray, pray that they stay here. He was just taunting them, you see. He told them to pray, not for the return of the vessels now in Babylon, but that the treasures that remain are preserved there. And of course, after the second deportation in 597, it was proved that these were indeed false prophets. Because everything was taken. Everything was taken. Well, the message does end with the promise of hope. It does end with the promise of hope. I want you to look at it again. It's verses 21 and 22. Yes, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning the vessels that remain in the house of the Lord, and in the house of the king of Judah and of Jerusalem, they shall be carried to Babylon. <coughs> And there they shall be until the day I visit them, says the Lord. Then I will bring them up and restore them to this place. <coughs> Excuse me. At the end of 70 years of captivity, the Lord would visit his people in Babylon and bring them back to their land. It was the Lord's promise to them. After 70 years, I will gather you. I will bring you back. So how true then are the words of the prophet Habakkuk? 
Habakkuk was a uh, Habakkuk was a um, a prophet that was a contemporary of Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, when you first read the first few verses of Habakkuk, you you see how Habakkuk is kind of concerned about what God is doing with uh, using the Babylonians. Why them? Why are you letting them destroy your people? But along the way, he begins to see clearly what God is doing. So in Habakkuk 3, verse 2, it says, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. How often in our lives has God remembered mercy? How often in some of the most troubling times in our own lives has God remembered mercy? You see, destruction was imminent because of the sins of the people. But God does not forget His people. Let me close with some words from Isaiah 49. Because these words speak the very heart of mercy in God for His people. Sing, O heavens, Isaiah 49, 13. Sing, O heavens, be joyful, O earth, and break out in singing, O mountains. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have mercy on His afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and my Lord has forgotten me. Can I tell you before we move on? Before we move on. Verse 14. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can I tell you that that's what the enemy wants you to believe? The enemy wants you to believe that God doesn't care for you anymore if you're if you've sinned if you've fallen into some trap of sin in your life he doesn't want you to believe that 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 God has that God still cares he wants you to think that God has forgotten you that he's forsaken you but you see that would make God a liar right it makes God a liar because you see God all along has said I will never forsake you I will never leave you if you're mine. In verse 15 it says, Can a woman forget her nursing child and not have compassion on the son of her womb? We like to believe that a woman would not forget her nursing child. We'd like to believe it, but we've all heard the stories of women, especially young women, that don't want children. They'd rather go party than, you know, take care of a child. A few years ago, a high school girl had a baby in, during her prom and got rid of the baby. Can a woman forget? The fact of the matter is the answer is yes. Surely they may forget, yet I will not forget you, says the Lord. I will not forget you. And then he says, see, I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. He says, I have etched you into the palm of my hands. I'll always see you. I'll always hold on to you. I'll never forget you. And so, we need to remember the promise that God makes to His people. So don't ever feel that God is forgetting you or forsaking you. Yes, there are times when he has to let certain 
situations or consequences take place. But it's all to draw us back to Him. He just wants us to come back to Him. And we live in a time when we can become awfully self-centered. So more concerned about the busyness of our own lives than to realize how much God wants to spend that time with us. So even in the church, let's not get to that point of being so busy that we forget to spend time alone with God who loves us and cares for us. Let's pray.